Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. Lord, I bless you. And I thank you for the opportunity, God, to worship you together, to be together, to find encouragement in you together, to be reminded that you are our everything, to be reminded that our joy is found in you. And we desire, God, to, we know the power of your word, we know how transforming it is, we know how uh, life-giving it is, how enlightening it is, and so we ask for you, Holy Spirit, to eliminate, illuminate your word to us um, and eliminate distractions for us, God, so that we might be able to behold you and so honor you with our lives, God, and so exalt you, Lord. Find encouragement in your word today. I bless you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, we are, I think that today is our last study in um, the Old Testament as we are looking for foreshadowings of Jesus. We've seen types, we've seen Christophanies, and I think last week uh, is, was the beginning of discovering prophecies, and so we will look at another prophecy in Isaiah. Last week we looked at the suffering servant. Today, we will look at a prophecy in Isaiah 7 that speaks of the virgin birth. I don't know about you, but uh, we, the way that God has, I don't know your understanding about human biology. I'm sure all of you here are adults, so you understand how things work. Uh, when I look at the, the virgin birth, I see I think I preached a sermon maybe last year or the year before that talked about uh, a divine disruption, right? Uh, when we think of the virgin birth, you, I look at it that way. It's a divine disruption. It disrupts how we normally think uh, about how relationships should progress. It disrupts how uh, we, we know biology <laughs> to work. It disrupts that and changes all of that. And we, I, I believe that there's theological implications for that, for this kind of disruption. Um, I think oftentimes we've heard of the virgin birth. We read uh, Isaiah 7, 14 in isolation. And sometimes we don't understand the whole context behind it. But what I want to point out to you is that, uh, just an overview, is that God, God works through households. And in Isaiah 7:14, it's predominantly what he is doing and what he brings to the forefront is a, a particular household. So let's read Isaiah 7. We're going to read Isaiah 7:10 through 16 to, to gain some sort of a context here. All right. Isaiah 7:10 through 16 says, "Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, "Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven." But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land, uh, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The context here of this sign is... Uh, I think it alludes to it as in that passage that we read. Why, who is Ahaz? Why is he in dread? And why is the Lord uh, encountering Ahaz, right? 
Those are the questions that you might have. Ahaz is the 11th king of Judah. Uh, he is in the line of David, and he d- has not followed in the likes of David. Oftentimes, remember, when we were doing our first kings and second kings uh, study, we learned that most ki- all the kings were either uh, related to or compared to David or this king named Ahab. Right? Or uh, is that true? Yes, I believe that's true. They were, um, they were compared to David, whether they measured like David, whether they had a heart like David, whether they worshipped God like David, whether they prioritized uh, the Lord like David did. Um, and Ahaz was not one of those kings. In fact, if you read the background, like in Second Chronicles 28, 2 through 4, you gain understanding of the kind of king that he was. Ahaz was an idolatrous king, not just an idol worshiper who set up worship places in high places on high hills. He also sacrificed his own sons to the gods of the Canaanites. So he was participating in immorality and also in detestable ways of worship, right? So because of this, this very thing, the Lord hands him over to both the king of Syria and the king of Israel, or um, Samaria, as we know, who is a relative of Judah. As you know, the, maybe the, you don't know, but the kingdom split eventually. And so you have two kings who one's the king of Israel and one's the king of Judah. So they come against Ahaz and they tear him apart. They tear him apart to the point where God has to reprimand. They tear him apart, but they take it too far, and God reprimands Israel for taking it too far. They're like, all right, God's like, I just wanted you to go and discipline, but you went and took all their people captive and all this stuff. I want you to give the people back. Keep the stuff, give the people back, right? And so this is the context in which Ahaz is found. He's already feeling defeated because he has been defeated, but God has been gracious to let his, his lineage continue or his kingdom stand, right? He didn't let it go too far. Um, and so God sends Isaiah and his son to uh, give, to speak to Ahaz. He encourages Ahaz and says, listen, the plans that the king of Syria and Israel have will not come to be. If you look at chapter 7, verse 6, it tells us that uh, they're... they're Their plan was to uh, terrify Judah, to conquer, and to set up their own king. Why is that a hard thing or a a thing that shouldn't be allowed? It's because God had made a promise to David. So if the, the king of Syria and the king of Israel succeed, they take over the land and they remove the king that God, uh, they remove the king that's in the line of promise. God spoke to, uh, to David in, in 2 Samuel 17, uh, 7 verse 16. He says to him, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So the context of this sign that we often look at, the virgin shall be with child and she shall conceive and give birth and his name will be Emmanuel. The context of this is an opportunity or an invitation. Ahaz receives an opportunity or an invitation to invite the resources of God into his reality. God has already said this is not going to happen and he invites Ahaz to ask for a sign. If you were a king in dread, destroyed, distraught, worried, and afraid about the future of your household, wouldn't you want a sign from the Lord that this is, in fact, not going to happen? If God gives you an opportunity to ask for a sign, would you take it? I think all of us here and all of us at home would say, absolutely, I'm going to take the opportunity to really make sure that my family line um, is, continues and, and fulfills its destiny on the earth. But like uh, a fearless, or not fearless, a cowardly, uh, faithless king that he is, he, he acts pious and says, I'm not going to put you to the test, Lord. Or I'm not going to ask for a sign and I'm not going to put you to the test. And really what that was is a rejection of God 
and his invitation to give him resources. Why would a king who's supposed to reign over God's people reject God's invitation and God's provision for his moment? The only thing I can think of today or uh, this week as I was thinking about this, I just think that a faithless person will see the offer of a divine solution as an intrusion. When you don't, when you don't have a paradigm for a God who comes to deliver you and a God who is personal and you're filled with pride, any bit of help that a divine uh, being could give to you would look like an intrusion. And you'd feel some type of way about that to the point where you wouldn't uh, welcome it. So God says, all right, I gave you the opportunity to ask for a sign. Ahaz, you didn't, but this is the sign I'm going to give you. So God gives him a sign instead. And that's where we see uh, that he doesn't address Ahaz in particular. He, He addresses the household of David. So if you look at verse 12, it says, uh, Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And verse 13 says, and he said, this is Isaiah speaking uh, to Ahaz, that he is Isaiah. Hear then, O house of David. So Ahaz, you don't want to hear it, but everybody else in the house of David, hear this. What should they hear? Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? That's you, plural. They are uh, exhausting the patience of God. And what does God offer? He doesn't necessarily offer judgment. He offers hope. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And what is the sign? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That is the context of which we get, where we get this virgin birth. Why is this important? Because of the threat. The threat, the imminent threat that the king of Syria and the king of Israel are posing. They don't, they don't just want to terrify the people. They don't just want to conquer them. They want to remove him as king and replace their own king. But that violates God's promise to David. That his throne would stand forever. That he will always have someone on the throne in the line of David. You see, so when the, th- the household of David is threatened, God then addresses the household of David. He wants to use Ahaz as an agent by which his blessings flow through, his goodness flow through. But Ahaz wants nothing to do with it. So God is saying, in the future, this is what I'm going to do. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and Emmanuel will be with you. And so there is... Um, there, there is hope for the people. But what you need to understand is that in, this, in giving this sign, the immediate context also says that by the time this kid is grown, all of the people that you fear will be, this, this land will be deserted. This will be destroyed. The people you fear will be dealt with, right? So there is immediate fulfillment, but there's also future looking. Some commentators believe that this is not referring to when it, re- when it switches over to the therefore, uh, or sorry, in uh, verse 16, when it switches over to talk about for, they believe he's no, they know that he's, Isaiah's no longer talking about the Emmanuel to come. He's talking about his son who's with him in the present place. God sent Isaiah and his young son with him. And the name of his young son happens to mean there shall be a remnant. So the the son that goes with Isaiah is also a prophetic sign that there will be a remnant, there will be preservation, but by the time he eats curds and drinks milk, all this will be dealt with. In fact, if you look into chapter 8, even Judah is counted as those who will be judged or Assyria will be encroaching up on the neck of Judah. So, big, big ideas. The house of David is threatened. Ahaz does want, wants nothing to do with being an agent by which the resources of God flows through. So then God announces or addresses the house of David. Which is interesting 
that when you read the fulfillment of this passage in Matthew and in Luke, you see that God addresses Joseph as son of David. So he's dealing in this, in this fulfillment, he's dealing with the household of David. That is the promise that he gives to them. So let's look at that. In Matthew 1, 18 through 25, we're going to read all of that. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So, let's break down the prophecy. The prophecy says that there will be a virgin. The prophecy says that the virgin will conceive. The prophecy says that there, she will bear a son, and that his name will be Emmanuel. So how do we see this fulfilled? We see in Matthew chapter 1 that the virgin that, uh, that God was referring to in Isaiah 7 is Mary. Mary was the one whom God had in mind. And it's interesting that it uses the definitive article, the, the virgin, it's, it, which, which delineates the fact that there is a specific person that God has in mind when he spoke those words through Isaiah to the household of David in Isaiah 7, 14. He had one person in mind. If there's anything to learn about God is that he knows the present and he knows the future and he knows it thoroughly. It's a thorough understanding. This is who he is. This is, in a sense, a glimpse to his omniscience, omniscience that he is all-knowing. So he can see the end from the beginning. Right? He knows the end from the beginning and the all in between. God is incredible in that way. So the virgin is Mary, the definitive person. And um, to be a virgin or to be references, as you know, you and I know, your idea of what a virgin is, is that very thing. That it's a young lady who is uh, pubescent and who is marriageable and has not had sexual relations. No one has gone into her. She is pure as pure can be. And so she is a virgin. And the Gospels reiterate that. In Matthew 1, it says, excuse me, 118, it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Matthew uh, testifies to her virginity before they came together. Luke also testifies to that. He says in uh, Luke chapter 1, 26 and 27, um, Gabriel was sent from God to Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So who is a definitive virgin? Mary. We, under, we, we know it from how the scripture unfolded, how the angel interacted with, um, with both Mary and with Joseph. We know it. Mary is the virgin and uh, Mary is the woman God had in mind. And her current state, her current sexual state was uh, untouched. She was untouched. And so it says in the prophecy that she shall 
conceive. To conceive is, as you and I know, uh, the Bible uses incredible language here. That she would, she would be receptive. She would receive. Conception is always uh, looked in the Bible as receiving. We know now that there, there is a contribution that that woman makes to the matter, right? It's not just uh, the man depositing his seed, but it's also uh, it's two seeds coming together to create life. But what the idea is that her her womb would be uh, accepting of what is necessary for the creation of life. Her, her womb would be the environment for the nurturing and growing of this child. And I couldn't help uh, but to have in mind, like, when you, all that we have preached about Jesus, that he is the seed, that he is the ram, that he is the lamb, right? That he is the angel of the Lord, that he is the one who would come to save the world by, by the, becoming the suffering servant. All of these ideas of God, of who the Messiah is, of who this Emmanuel is, are encompassed in this womb. Like all of it sucked in to this very moment of conception and deposited into the very womb of a woman. This is a disruption, but it is a divine disruption, and and her womb is the perfect place for this to happen says in Matthew 1.18 that she was found to be with child. It says in Matthew 1.20 when God spoke to Joseph, the angel spoke to Joseph, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. If you are wondering, like me, how is this possible? You, all of us who are adults have been to biology class, and those of us who are married and live life, we understand some things of how this works. But how, in fact, Will a virgin conceive? And this is exactly the question Mary had. How, how, how is this? She says in, excuse me. Um, <laughs> she says in Luke verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how would this be since I'm a virgin? Like, it's cool and all. I'm, I'm a little afraid of this idea. This is a whole new concept for me. I'm supposed to be married to this dude before this ever happens. Like, that's the normal processes of things. But she asked the question, okay, I see what you're putting, I'm picking up what you're putting down, but how is this going to happen? And what does the angel say to her? He says to her in Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. God. So this is a direct work of the Holy Spirit. And it's a, a work of the Holy Spirit of overshadowing her. The same idea uh, of the Holy Spirit overshadowing her is spoken of when Jesus says to his disciples in Acts 1a, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So you and I who have believed in the Lord Jesus, have received power. And so in the likes, and some, some people, as we know, I think as people in the Alliance, uh, we are looking for crisis moments, but we also know that some of this work of the Holy Spirit happens in faith and behind the scenes where we don't see tangible things, but there are often tangible expressions of when the Holy Spirit comes in power. So if you think of it, Acts chapter 2, in my mind, connects to this moment. How do they receive power? Well, there was tongues of fire coming. There was shaking in the room. The wind was rattling the building. There was an intelligible or tangible experience with God in the moment. And I'm assuming that it could have been that way for Mary. When the power of the Spirit overshadowed her and she conceived, it could have been just an ecstatic moment, a a, a crazy moment, but she knew something occurred. She knew something occurred. To the point where she left her house and went to spend some time with her Aunt Elizabeth. 
So what is in her was of the work of the Holy Spirit, and therefore the child will be called holy. So the conception being done by the Holy Spirit sets this creation in her apart from all other creations in a way or another. It would also allow him to sympathize with the rest of the creation. So there was a holiness in the moment, but there was also uh, some familiarity in the moment, right? If she went and talked to another pregnant woman, she would experience the same things those other pregnant women experienced. That's what I'm talking about with the similarities of the moment. She could have had morning sickness. I don't know. The Bible doesn't really look uh, and say all the details of how Mary handled this pregnancy, right? My wife does not handle pregnancy well. My perspective of pregnancy is that it's three months of like, dig down deep. Let's get through this. This is tough. I'm going to go crazy for a little bit of time because she's going to be laid out for this amount of time, right? So every pregnancy that we've had in my family, my wife and I, has been like, it's been work. And I get envious of those other dads who just, and, and wives, uh, wives who just, just go, it's like any other day, just the bigger belly, right? For both of them, husband and wife, right? <laughs> So, so I blame this on my wife's three months of uh, being sick in bed because I'm stress eating, right? Stress eating ice cream and all that stuff. She's probably listening right now. But my experience with birth is different than others. So it could have been a variety of experiences. And this is a beautiful thing, but we know that this is also a hard thing because a curse was put on humanity, right? When, when, when sin entered the world, this very process would be a laborious process for a woman. It would not be easy. That's part of the curse, <laughs> right? So we know that, that Mary's, this encounter with the Holy Spirit was great, but she was going to experience some of the real pain of life or the real joys of life, right? Like it's, a, pregnancy is a ball of emotions. It takes in like fear, anxiety with excitement, and, and you're just a mess. And women, you're even more of a mess because you got hormones inside of you, right? Affecting hormonally and uh, situational uh, craziness. And it says, that she would bear a son. So the prophecy says it would be a virgin. She shall conceive and she will bear a son. She would labor to bear a son. She would labor to bring the son of the most high into the world. Like I said, pregnancy is beautiful and crazy and stressful and anxious, but beautiful and joyful and exciting and all, you know, all those roller coasters of emotions. The birthing process is also beautiful, but it's also uncomfortable. It's also painful. And this is like from the outside looking at and experiencing it. It's strenuous, it's scary, it's sweaty, it's smelly, it's bloody, it's body altering. This birthing experience is, is life changing in many ways. And this is how God wants to enter into the world. He wants to, to, to put all of the humanity, all of the divinity in this womb. There's a holiness, there's a sacredness, but also there's some familiarity and some sympathy and empathy in the moment. She would bear a son. It also says in the prophecy that he, his name would be Emmanuel in Isaiah 7, 14. What about, is this a contradiction? To call him Emmanuel, but also call him Jesus? 
Well, one speaks of his function and one speaks of who he is and his identity. To be Emmanuel is to be identified as God, God with us. And I love that. To, to, to be named Jesus, it's to speak of what he would do, his destiny. He would be the savior of the world. He would save us from our sins. So in Jesus, we see uh, both identity, his identity is named in the name Emmanuel, God. He is God, and he is with us. And his function, or his purpose, is to save us. So it's not a contradiction, it's just fuller revelation of who he is. He is God with us, and he is also our savior. Amen? So, all of that, you have theology, you have the prophecy in context, the household of David threatened, you have the household of David being addressed, and then you have, in a sense, the fulfillment of this promise to the household of David in Jesus Christ. When Jesus came into, uh, was put into Mary, in the family uh, of which his father on earth would be in the line of David. Joseph, in the line of David. So what are, I want to talk about what do we learn about Jesus and what do we learn about God in this last section of our time. Got it? Is that good? We, see it, we saw the prophecy in context. We see it in fulfillment here um, in Jesus Christ, in Mary conceiving so what, what do we learn about Jesus? Well, we learn that he is holy. We learn that he is set apart, that he is different. And so Jesus being God is made possible uh, by this Holy Spirit conception. So what is divine in the moment, in, in that moment of conception was deposited or was contributed by the Holy Spirit, right? In regular, in regular life, you have a whole bunch of genes, dominant and recessive genes that are brought in to the DNA of the person uh, from the dad and from the mom. That's what you contribute to make a whole strand of DNA and the baby, boom, is there. All the blueprints are there from both sides. All the blueprints of divinity and humanity are there, contributed. Jesus cannot be divine if he was not holy or divinely conceived. That's what we believe. Amen? What else do we learn about Jesus? We learn that Jesus being born of Mary made his humanity possible. Just as the Holy Spirit deposited what is of, the, of divine, Mary contributed what is of humanity. That is how we can say that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Not half, half God and half man. He is fully God and fully man. What else do we learn? We learn that the conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit allows for Jesus' full humanity without sharing in Adam's sin. This divine disruption of how the normal way of life goes, meaning that Adam did not provide a seed for Jesus to be born in Mary or conceived in Mary, is uh, a one, once in history delineation away from the normal order of things. And so Wayne Grudem, who is uh, a professor of theology, he's a theologian, this is what he says. He says, in systematic theology, he says Luke, in Luke thir, one, excuse me, Luke one thirty five connects this conception by the Holy Spirit with the holiness of a moral purity of Christ, and reflection on that fact allows us to understand that though the absence of a human father, uh, that though the absence of a human father, Jesus was not fully descended from Adam. And that this break in the line of descent was the method God used to bring it about that Jesus was fully human yet did not share inherited sin from Adam. Got it? From a theologian. You can read that on page 531 of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. 
So his moral purity is directly related to his conception by the Holy Spirit. Because he doesn't share in Adam's sin. But he is fully human. Right? Amen? What else do we learn about Jesus? We learn that Jesus being born of Mary and Joseph put him in the lineage of David, which makes Jesus king. And that fulfills God's promise to David. God is, if you read the Bible, God makes promises and he's fulfilling them. That's what all of the Old Testament is. God made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to David. <laughs> and so from Genesis all the way through to uh, Deuteronomy, to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all of that, right? Uh, all the way to that, God is making a, fulfilling his promise to Abraham. When you get to the kings, David comes into place from King David all the way on. God is fulfilling his promise to David. All the while fulfilling his promise to Abraham. What is God's promise to Abraham? It's uh, land, it's seed, but also blessing. The promise to Abraham was that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And this is what I want to get to when we talk about God. What do we learn about God the Father in this? We learn that Jesus' morality, uh, pu uh, his purity, excuse me, his, his pure morality is, is linked to this. His divinity, his humanity, right, is all linked to this. His ruling is linked to his conception, uh, in, in divine and in this particular family. But what do we learn about God? We learn that God likes to do his work through families, through households. That's why he addresses this promise to the household of David. He says in Genesis 12, 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So while he's fulfilling his promise to David, he's still fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And we get to participate in that blessing through the, the gifting of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? And we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ get to push this forward. That our families established in the, under the authority of Jesus would further continue the blessing that God wants to make upon this earth or bestow upon the earth. Your family is absolutely important to this furthering of the blessing. Amen? God likes to do his work through families. What do we learn about God the Father? We learn that God likes to be with his people. That's why he sends the Emmanuel, who is God with us. That's why Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, said, I am with you even to the end of the age. When he was born, he was God with us. When he ascended into heaven, he is God with us. He continues to be with us. And if you read the Old Testament with this in mind, that God likes to be with his people, this is why God enters into relationships and covenants with households and families. In Israel, his whole purpose was, I will establish my presence among the people. That's why he sets up a tabernacle when his glory, uh, where his glory dwells. That's why he, David and Solomon dream of a temple where God's glory dwells and is. God wants to be among his people. This is why next week we'll talk about the incarnation of Jesus. God wants to be with his people. He always desires that. Not because he needs us. He doesn't need us. But it's just his desire to be with us. We need him to be with us. Amen? And so I don't know why God is so committed to wanting to be with us. And I, this, is, this should like stop us in our tracks and see, wow, God, you, you are that loving. You are that caring. You are that gracious that you would want to be with us. I don't even want to be with me sometimes, right? How many of you have been in that moment, in that situation? Right. But God does want to be with his people. And when he's with you, he makes you more bearable to himself and also to yourself. You need him. You need him to be with you. 
What else do we learn about God the Father? We learn that God is the only one who can save. The only way salvation could come into the world is if God deposited the means by which salvation could be had. And that is through the Emmanuel. That is through the the Christ, Yeshua, the Lord who saves. Jesus bears that name because only God can save. And Jesus is an embodiment of that. God with us, Jesus, God is the only one who can save. And Jesus is the only name given to man by which we must be saved. God is the only one who can save. What else we learn about God? We learn that God wants to adopt us through his son. In Galatians 4, 4 through 5, it says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God is interested in expanding his family through the adoption of all who believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. And this adoption is final. It's never debatable in heaven. When God adopts you, you're his, and you're stuck with him. That's how he is. Jesus says it. In John, in John chapter 6, he says, The ones whom the Father gives to me can never be cast out. So if the Father gives you to Jesus, then you're stuck. You're his. All the way through eternity. And that is for your and my good. Amen? That blesses me. His adoption is final. So, we see that God works when, when the household of David is threatened, God gives a, a word of preservation to the household of David. We see its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is a son of David, and who is the rightful heir of the throne of David. And in it, we see who, in, in this work, in this prophecy, we see all of the theological implications. We don't see all of them, we didn't talk about all of them, but those are the ones that came to mind and I shared. We see uh, who Jesus is fully and how he can be fully. We see who God the Father is through God the Son. Amen? We see it expanded a little bit. But what are some practical impl- implications to this? I know that a lot of us, we have in mind, all right, God works through household. What about my household? And I- I've alluded to it. When God saves you, he intends to work at saving the rest of your family. Why? Because they see you. They see you. They see the deposit of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Just like everyone saw the deposit of the Holy Spirit inside of Mary. And granted, it came with adverse reactions, right? When Mary conceived, she was received by Elizabeth. Like that was a joyful expression. Wow, how honored am I that the mother of my Lord would come, right? That was Elizabeth's reaction. When Joseph heard, it's like, ah, I got to get rid of this lady. Adverse reactions to, to Jesus inside of you, to Holy Spirit's deposit inside of you. And you and I, we will face that. We will lose friends because of God's Holy Spirit inside of us. We lose family members because of God's Holy Spirit inside of us, right? But there's also the possibility of them being convinced that God is truly at work. When when they see your perseverance, when they see this taking root inside of you, that, that even though they're the bitter person in the family and they're the mean one in the family, you keep showing grace and forgiveness and kindness and love, that chisels away. At that hardness, the, the Spirit's deposit inside of you is a testimony to those who behold you, to those who see you. And it may look in this moment that they, there is nothing but opposition to you, but believe me, God is working to convince them that he is truly in your life. And if he can be truly in your life, he can be in their lives too. Amen? I feel like that's, that's hope. 
right? There are people who want to separate from you because of what God is doing inside of you. And there are people who will gladly receive you with joy. That's the family of God. I mean, sometimes when somebody gets saved and they're like over the top saved, even us, we're just like, all right, you're too Jesus for us. We need to get over that. That's some excitement, right? We need to be able to write. I've been a Christian for so long and I look at those who, I used to look at cynicism with those who were excited in the beginning stages of their walk with Jesus. Like, oh yeah, that will wear out. But in a sense, but I've been challenged to look at their excitement and their joy and to share in it. And to ask the Lord, Lord, can you rekindle that same thing inside of me? Right? I, I don't I want to be an Elizabeth. Whenever I see Jesus deposited in someone's life, I want to be an Elizabeth. I want to, to be so filled with the Spirit that when that person comes, I'm like jumping inside for joy. I don't want to be a Joseph that says, ah, I got to push her to the side. I'm going to do this quietly because she is just too over the top. You get me? Let's share in the joy of what God has deposited in people. I felt like that was a word for us in this season. Amen? The other implication is to know that God wants to bless your household. I find it interesting that as Paul and Silas were in prison, singing songs to the Lord, shackled to the walls, and all of a sudden the presence of God comes uh, opens prison's doors, the chains fall out, right? And the jailer comes and he's like, crap, they all just escaped. And he goes to kill himself. Paul says, don't do it. We're all here. And what happens is that he begins to ask them questions about this God that they worshiped, even in the midst of sacrifice, even in, even in, sorry, in the midst of suffering. And he begins to ask this question, what must I do to be saved? And what does Paul say? Paul says, uh, Luke counts this in, Luke, in Acts chapter 16, verse 30 through 33. This is what he says. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke of the word, the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. This is the jailer washing the wounds of Paul and Silas. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Like I said, your salvation is, is, is God playing things out in, in the very, right before the very eyes of your family. And I believe that God intends to bless your household. And God intends to bless the generations below you that come behind you. And you are absolutely important to that. Uh, in this particular moment, this jailer has no, we have no indication that he had any uh, redemptive history with God. We have no indication of God breaking into a grandma, to a granddad, to a dad, to a mom, and then passing faith down to them. This is like fresh household atheistic or theistic and worshiping of the, the Roman emperor. Um, this is like idolatrous almost, like heathen kind of life, gospel breaking in. You don't need the history with God for Jesus to break into the moment and change the rest of your family life. You don't need that. That's not a prerequisite for God. He can come in the moment in the moment, in this moment in history, and change the rest of your family. And he can do it retroactively. Like he can go back and everything that was set in place, he can change that. Why? Because he became a curse for us. So family curses are a non-issue for God. Dealt with on the cross. Family, uh, family misalignments with God. Boom, dealt with in Jesus. And you and I get to participate in that by simply being faithful to Jesus, by simply being like Mary and, and, and allowing your temple 
to be a perfect place to nurture and grow this Holy Spirit life or this Jesus life from within you and out of you. We get to, we get to nourish that. Amen? And so I want you to see that God addresses the household of David, but he also addresses your household. And he wants your household to come under the authority of Jesus. And Jesus promises to be a righteous king, a holy king, a wonderful, comforting king, a providing king, a saving king. Jesus promises that for your family. Amen? It may come with adverse reactions, but nonetheless, there is a lot of hope for your and my family as we continue in the faithfulness of Jesus. Lord, we bless you. The worship team's gonna come up and sing Joy to the World one more time uh, with us. Um, we bless you, And like I prayed earlier today that you would release angels, Lord, to repair households. I pray in this hour that you would turn the hearts of fathers to the hearts of their children, and that you would turn the hearts of children to the hearts of fathers. I ask, Lord God, that, you, that everything that needs to be in alignment, oh God, for blessings to flow, would come into alignment as one person in the family line puts their faith in Jesus. Redeem it. We know there's incest, there's sexual abuse, there's alcoholism, there's addiction, there's uh, greed and poverty. There's all these things, God, that come from in our family lines. And we're asking, Lord, for you, by the power of Christ, to sever that and begin something new. That this new creation work that you do inside of us, oh Lord, uh, would, would flow. I love the line in Joy to the World that uh, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So wherever the curse has gone, God, to wreak havoc, we welcome the joy and the blessing of your son, Jesus Christ, into all of these things, God. Make it. Make it a joyful thing this season, God. Make it a joyful thing to behold or to look for. Lord, release prophetic words over families, God. Speak into destinies, Lord. Speak preservation over family lines where the enemy has been speaking death. We, we bind that in the name of Jesus and we lose life into the bloodlines. We lose life into the destiny of these families, O oh Lord. We bless you, O oh Lord. Where there is idolatry, where there is faithlessness, we bind those and we lose faith. We lose eyes, Lord, to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. We lose these things, O oh Lord. Come and make your blessings flow far as the curse is found. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.